0: Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. Kol Hadash is a humanistic Jewish congregation located in Chicago's North Shore suburb of Highland Park. The following episode is a recording of Rabbi Shalom's 5778 Rosh Hashanah Evening Sermon entitled Post-Truth, recorded on September 20th, 2017. For more information about Rabbi Shalom, Kol Hadash, and humanistic Judaism, visit kolhadash.com. I do not like saying, I don't know. I knew I had found a good partner in life when my then future wife figured out how to tell the difference between when I knew what I was talking about and when I was taking my best guess. Sometimes my guess was right, sometimes not. But the correct answer should have been, I don't know. Of course, we were dating in the dark ages BSP before smartphones. If right now I ask a factual question, like is the United States still officially at war with North Korea, or what year did Jews first arrive in North America, can you resist the urge to reach for the truth <laughs> just a few thumb taps away, or at least all the truth that's fit to Google? You see, there is truth out there. Not your truth or my truth or our truth or their truth or liberal or conservative truth or secular or religious truth. Some questions may not have truthy answers, like the year the Jews reached North America. Some facts can be up for debate. But if we surrender all claim to any truth, if we accept every subjective reality as equally valid, we give up on something essential about being human. And for those who cannot take the uncertainty, Jews first arrived in North America in 1654. (laughs) That fact, at least, is not post-truth. This year's High Holiday series is called Forbidden Phrases. The name is problematic. We value freedom of speech because we value freedom of thought. And you should be able to say what you think. In the United States, With limits for public safety, like inciting violence or yelling fire in a crowded Rosh Hashanah service, we can say what we want. But free speech does not mean consequence free speech. If you proclaim yourself a Nazi, I can condemn you. I can boycott you. In an at-will employment state like Illinois, you can be fired. I can even put a thumbs down rating on your YouTube video. Free speech is not consequence free speech. And that means I need to do more than just say what I think. I need to think about what I say and the impact that it has. Remember the language choices, pro-life and pro-choice, or why we are humanistic Judaism based on what we do believe and celebrate rather than what we do not. Language matters. The Holocaust-era poet Avraham Sutzkever drawing on his own experience escaping his generation's Nazis, once wrote, walk on words as on a minefield. We know why the Oxford Dictionary's 2016 word of the year was post-truth. Between social media, internet trolls and Twitter bots, ideological self-segregation, confirmation bias, where we prefer facts that support what we already believe, and new extremes of consequence-free political speech, post-truth seems to describe the world all too well. Here's how Oxford defined post-truth, quote, denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. To repeat, where objective facts are less influential than appeals to emotion and personal belief. When I read that, I was reminded of the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, who wrote, there is nothing new under the sun. That is not a post-truth reality. That is reality. The more we learn about how the mind works, the more we know that objective facts are less influential than emotion and prior beliefs. William F. Buckley once defined a conservative as someone who stands athwart history yelling, stop. Our humanism should not be a philosophy that stands athwart human nature yelling, think, don't feel. We can encourage people to think more, but our deep emotional brain is far deeper than recent ideas. We are emotional thinkers. Moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt describes our rational minds as a human riding an elephant And the human's job is to justify whatever the elephant does. And yet, despite our emotions, or maybe because of them, there is a human temptation for absolute truth. We want to know. And we do not want your best guess, or approximately, or likely, or maybe. Traditional religion promises truth and certainty. The world was made in exactly six days, beginning on Rosh Hashanah. Here are the 10 commandments or the 613 commandments, or the 2,700 pages of Talmud that tell you exactly what to do with your life, what to wear, and what to eat, and what to say, and what to think. If you still have questions, take the Torah of truth and turn it, and turn it, for all is inside it. Indeed, you may already know all the truth there is. There is a Jewish legend that just before a baby is born, An angel takes the new soul on a tour of the entire world, showing it all of the human knowledge that is available. And then just before the child is born, the angel says, shh, and that touch of the finger to the lips causes the child to forget everything. And therefore, everything they learn is remembering. Now, this story is an origin myth for that little indentation under your nose. And I'm not going to keep you in suspense without your smartphones. It's called a filtrum. I looked it up on my phone, which also told me that we are not still officially at war with North Korea because we never declared war on North Korea. It was a police action. Now, this myth of the angel saying shh also tries to explain how we know what we know. This is not originally a Jewish explanation. The Greek philosopher Plato also had a theory of human knowledge as recollection. Religion, Plato, Torah, philosophy, they all try to answer that key question, how do you know what you know? How can you know if something is true or fake news? Enlightenment thinkers rejected the truths of traditional religion. For them, the good news was fake news. But they did not reject it for the factual nihilism of post-truth. Modernist philosophy was convinced that we knew things. We knew them for certain. And we would eventually know everything. Evidence, reason, science. These would answer all the questions, big and small. It was a heady time of discovery, from the power of the atom to secrets of the genetic code and the Big Bang origin of the universe. There were cracks in that foundation. New discoveries questioned prior certainties. Light could act as a particle and as a wave, depending on circumstances. Individual and cultural bias in the pursuit of knowledge became undeniable. Historians were not simply objective stenographers with no agenda. As we learned to question authority from industry-supported science to corporate media to the presidency itself, we became experts in the insight of the opera Porgy and Bess. It ain't necessarily so. Not everything could be measured, certainly not now and maybe never. And so postmodernists, at their extreme, question any claim to objective knowledge. They were post-truth before we called it post-truth. In some ways, Jewish culture was also post-truth before post-truth. One of my favorite short Jewish books is called Zachor, it means Remember, by the Jewish historian Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi. Zachor explores the difference between Jewish history and Jewish memory. Jewish history is what happened, as best we can tell. Jewish memory is what we think happened, what we believe, and it is very hard to change memory using history. The stories we learn from grandparents or retell at Passover seder have deeper roots than a tentative archaeological discovery. 15 years ago, a conservative rabbi in California got into big trouble because he stood up at his congregational seder And he said, well, we all know that according to archaeology, the exodus didn't happen the way it's described in the Haggadah. What? (laughs) Shock, dismay. My favorite quotation in the LA Times story about the incident was a member of the congregation who said, did he have to say it at the Seder? (laughs) In other words, this may be true. And you can say so in an adult education class in the library with 20 people. But why say that in the sanctuary during the actual holiday? That's Jewish memory, not Jewish history. Now, we take a different approach. We distinguish between story and history, and we learn both, and we celebrate with both. But I'm sure you know some people who prefer story to history, who prefer belief to fact. Is a traditional Passover Seder, post-truth? What about a Rosh Hashanah service? Is it more effective as an anniversary of the world's creation? and a day of cosmic judgment, the last chance to get back on the straight and narrow? Or can we refocus the holiday on the need for self-judgment and human responsibility? As if we needed more hurdles beyond how the human mind works, the unreliability of human knowledge, and the weight of Jewish tradition, the world just does not like truth-tellers. When the prophets condemned the kings of Israel for oppressing the poor, the prophets were persecuted. In Greek mythology, Cassandra is known for telling the inconvenient truth and tragically not being believed. We resist hearing bad things about people we admire, people on our team, people who had a positive impact on the world, even if they themselves were not perfect. Think about my job officiating at funerals. Absolute honesty is not the best policy. (laughs) And yet, even then, There is a place for the truth told in an emotionally sensitive way. If the deceased were a very critical person, I might say she had high standards. She pushed you to excel. It sounds positive, and the family knows what I mean. (laughs) And maybe they start to see it from a new perspective. She wanted the best for them, their health, their happiness and success, even if she could have shared it a little bit better. Please understand that no one is committed to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This summer, I sent in my high holiday sermon descriptions. And in what could have been assigned, I received this issue of National Geographic in the mail, cover story, Why We Lie. (laughs) A quote from the article, researchers found that subjects lied on average one or two times a day. Most of these untruths were innocuous intended to hide one's inadequacies or protect the feelings of others. Some lies were excuses. One subject blamed the failure to take out the garbage on not knowing where it needed to go. (laughs) Yet other lies, such as a claim of being a diplomat's son, were aimed at presenting a false image. The article goes on to say that lying is part of the developmental process. Children learn to lie between ages two to five. And the proportion of people who tell a few lies a day changes throughout the life cycle. The peak age for this small lying? Ages 13 to 17. Almost twice as likely to lie as ages 6 to 8 or 60 to 77. Is anyone really surprised? Now you may be asking yourself, has the rabbi been lying? Is he really a fan of post-truth after all? Absolutely not. I believe in human truth which is always to the best of our knowledge. To return to the elephant, human knowledge is a bit like the story of three blind men trying to describe an elephant. One touches the ear and says an elephant must be like a fan. One touches the tail and says an elephant must be like a rope. One touches the trunk and says an elephant must be like a garden hose. We humans have partial knowledge with many limits, our own experience, our cognitive bias that filters what we learn, Our cultural framework, our limited time compared to the vastness of possible knowledge. However, we are together much more than three blind men feeling out an elephant. What if there were 300 or 3,000 people of many backgrounds and experiences exploring what would have to be a very patient elephant? (laughs) They might discover where the ear meets the head, how the leg leads to the torso, where tusks and trunk intersect. Perhaps we would never know everything about the elephant for all time and for all elephants, but we could certainly know a lot. The value in the secular critique of religious knowledge is learning to abandon absolute truth. The value in the postmodern critique of knowledge is that it helps us to correct ourselves, to adjust and refine our truths, like a rower who learns to pull differently given changing wind or fitness or rowing partners. Other people can point out our biases if we listen, not to destroy the possibility of truth or to hurt our ego, but rather to improve our ability to find the truth. Jewish feminists point out blind spots in rabbinic literature when it comes to gender and women's experience that male rabbis have missed for centuries. And that's good, because now our teaching can be more true to more people. If we accept post truth, it means giving up on that very human project to know. Post truth does not just mean you have your truth and I have my truth. Post-truth really means no truth. Some prefer it that way. If they are not bound by evidence or history or logic, they can say whatever they want without accountability. And free speech is indeed consequence-free speech. We continue our balkanization into separate silos of knowledge, talking to each other in our own closed systems of truth. Step one is to admit that we have a problem, and to name it, post-truth something we can describe but should not accept. But what do we do next? First, physician, heal thyself. Practice the truth you want to see in the world. If it is too good to be true, maybe it is too good to be true. How do you know something is true? Is there a reason I want this to be true? Smartphones have been a blessing and a curse, but one of the blessings is easy access to facts if you know where to look. Snopes.com, S-N-O-P-E-S, is a good place to start. They've made a career out of separating truth from post-truth and with evidence you can check for yourself. Remember that great Facebook meme that some of you may have seen? You can't trust everything you read on the internet, said Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) Second, we need to learn how to persuade. Remember, we are talking to the elephant, not the person riding the elephant and justifying what the elephant wants. It's not just the facts, ma'am. We need facts that move emotions. A personal human story will appeal to more people than statistics alone. The Sarasota Herald Tribune recently published an exhaustive study of criminal justice and race in Florida that shows the bias. Despite a system designed to give clear point scores to guide sentencing, in an unbiased way. The charts and the statistics are striking. And then you see the faces and read the stories of two 17-year-olds, both with three prior juvenile convictions, both charged with armed robbery for stealing a few hundred dollars with a gun, in the same county. The sentencing guidelines, under which they scored the same points, said that four years was the lowest permissible sentence. And both offenders took plea deals. But one's plea deal was for four years in prison, while the other plea deal was probation with no incarceration at all. Need I clarify which offender was black and which offender was white? The statistics make clear this is not an isolated case or just one county. But the individual story makes the point even stronger. We may want to deny this reality as fake news or retreat behind the comfort of post-truth or to say this is a political issue, not one of justice and righteousness. But it's that much harder to hide when the story is that clear. If an argument comes from a place of fear, you are not going to pull the other person back from their post-truth by starting with, that's ridiculous. You have nothing to fear. That's another way of saying, you're just wrong, which is often heard as, you're just dumb. There's a popular saying that teaching without learning is just talking. If that's true, then arguing without persuading is just noise or helping you feel better about yourself, but not moving forward. When I was a graduate student, I received a great piece of life advice when they told us that grading would be much more effective if A, we avoided using red pen, and B, we started by writing something nice about the essay before offering criticisms. If you want to persuade someone they are wrong, you need to affirm them in some way first. I understand why you're afraid. I see your point about X, but it doesn't change my mind about Y. If there is a truth to be told, there are ways to tell it, so that it may be heard and understood and possibly agreed to. I value the Exodus story for its message of freedom. The history is where we disagree. Finally, the reality that there can be many perspectives on one issue does not mean that we acquiesce to post-truth. Sometimes there can be many truths that are simultaneously true. I once met with the adult children of a woman who had died to learn about her life. Both of her children told me that she was not really a great mother. Not nurturing, not caring, somewhat self-centered. It was a very difficult relationship for each of the adult children. Before the funeral took place, I was lucky enough to talk with the deceased woman's grandchildren. And they had a very different perspective on her. Warm and encouraging and loving and engaged. It's almost like they were talking about two different women. And they were, 30 years later, at a different stage of life without the stress of raising children, having grown as a person. At first, I asked myself, how can I present the truth of this woman and her relationships? Then I realized that both the children and the grandchildren had given me a true representation of their relationship with her. Life and people and reality are complicated. And sometimes many truths is not post-truth. It is the truth. This is part of the inspiration of seeking the truth, being responsible to the truth, that has driven knowledge from the atomic to the cosmic, hearing many voices and perspectives on the same human reality. It is a universal human project to understand who we are and what the world is. And I will not give it up. Sometimes we know the truth deeply without revelations or angels or anything beyond ourselves. I want to conclude with a passage written by our own Rabbi Emeritus Daniel Friedman whose life work is a testimony to the pursuit of truth in Jewish life. We are the heirs to his courage in standing up for a Judaism dedicated to truth. We know more than we can see. Particles too small to see, we know, are the essence of reality. The earth we call home is but a beam of dust lost in a crowd of unseen silent suns. The innocence of children. The secret language of lovers, a flood of joy surprising the heart, these too we know through senses finer than the eye. Tonight we rest our vision and open the eyes within. We would know goodness. We would seek truth. We would honor justice. Beyond the world of cash and clamor is a more enduring realm. Here are found integrity, courage, righteousness. The quiet fellowship of this hour renews that world and restores it to our sight. L'shana Tovah, a good new year to all, and I mean it. This podcast was produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash Humanistic Congregation in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.